Hello, hello. How are you guys doing? I know I missed one last week, didn't I? Just like I did the week before, you know. <laughs> I'm slacking, man. I'm st- you're starting to feel like after episode 25 now, the momentum is slowing down. But in my defense, you know, I had to postpone the one last week because, you know, there was a major significant global, if not, you know, at least national event in the, um, the death of the Queen. I was literally about to press the button on the Frank Turner episode when somebody said to me, hey, man, have you heard the news? And I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to post the fucking ep- my podcast episode now. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'd be like, in other news, check out my podcast. So I decided to postpone the episode with Frank Turner, which pushed us into the following week. And then I went on holiday um, and I had a cancellation of one of my guests as well. So a couple of things happened whereby one episode came out within like a kind of two and a half week period. I can't remember. Who cares? What matters is we're still going, baby. And here we are. We're back with a brand new episode. And boy, what an episode this is going to be. I have been hounding today's guests like a mad dog. I recently read a book called Giants by an author called Peter Phillips, who's a professor of political sociology at Sonoma State University in America. And I mean it with 100% sincerity when I say that the book Giants by Peter Phillips is one of the best books I have ever read. Um, It's still, it's left a lasting impact on me. I'm looking at it right now and I know that it's going to be a book that I'm going to be going back to time and time again. Now, we talk a lot on the podcast about the elite and the rich and the powerful and the the, the rule makers and who runs the world and that sort of thing. But who exactly are we talking about when we say things like the elite and the rich and the powerful? Who exactly are we talking about? Well, Peter Phillips has put together a directory of 389 of the world's elite, most powerful people. These are the people that essentially run the world named by name, with a little bio on each of them showing you where they went to university, the companies that they're a part of, the boards that they're a member of, the institutions that they function in. And you get to see a bit of a pattern when you look through these lists. Now, this is fascinating stuff. This is the world's most powerful elite named by name. It's personifying what we often talk about in, in vague abstract terms, such as the elite and the powerful. And trust me, you haven't heard of a single damn one of them, because neither did I. But if you stick around to the end of the podcast, I am going to name a ton of them for you straight from the book so that you can go and do your own research and get an insight into exactly what I'm talking about here. Because you'll be like, who are these people? I've never heard of them, but oh my God. Now, I know that when you get into this nature of inquiry, you can sometimes skirt dangerously close to the realm of conspiracy theory. This is not that book. Trust me. This is painstakingly researched and meticulously put together in a really simple to read, digestible book, which I read in like a few days. Honestly, it's such an easy read. It sounds like it's going to be heavy going, but it's not. In the book, Peter Phillips simplifies it by laying it out into four separate layers. At the top, you've got what he calls the giants. Now, it's essentially 17 asset management firms that control pretty much everything else that happens on planet Earth. 17! Beneath that, he's put what he calls the facilitators. Now, this is uh, institutions such as like the IMF, the, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the Trilateral Commission, the World Economic Forum, Davos, um, you know, Bilderberg Group, Council of Foreign Relations, basically the social clubs where all these elite members develop their relationships with each other, cut deals, you know, strengthen their class connections and, and basically stay relevant within the, the world within which they operate. 
The even scarier thing about that, though, is that if you look at who is also a member of these these social clubs, and of course Peter Phillips lays it all out in the the chapter that deals with the facilitators. He names them all by name, which is the theme of the book. Um, you'll also see prime ministers, presidents, members of parliament, royal family members, media moguls, and you get to see how all these threads of power basically fit together and merge through these institutions such as uh, the Trilateral Commission and the Council of Foreign Relations and the Atlantic Council, because it's not just these super rich financier guys. It's, you know, heads of military, intelligence officers and policy advisors and members of think tanks. You know, they're all part of the same club. It's the same names time and time again. You see them in the chapter where he deals with the the giants, you see them in the facilitators, and you see them in other chapters as well. It's just a, a revolving buffet of the same really, really rich dudes where the lines are blurred between governments, finance, military, and media. It's absolutely fucking terrifying. But... Peter lays out exactly who these guys are by name. It's such a unique and brilliant idea. And the book, like I said, it's a short read. It's very concise. It's not overly academic or anything like that. Peter lays out the purpose of each of the four layers. And then he describes who the members are of those layers and how they interact with the others. It's a brilliant, fascinating, really important work. And you know when something's good, when you've got Noam Chomsky on the front saying, and this is a quote, Who exactly are the masters? This remarkable inquiry lifts the veil, providing detailed and often shocking revelations. When Chomsky says you're cool, you know you're cool. So I want to bring on the guests and stop waffling now. Um, I hope I've bigged up the book enough for you guys to rush out and get a copy. It's called Giants by Peter Phillips. It's out now on Seven Stories Press. It's actually a few years old. So um, one can only assume that things have gotten so much better, right? Well, let's find out. So Peter Phillips has been a professor of political sociology at Sonoma State University since 1994. He is a former director of Project Censored and a former president of the Media Freedom Foundation. He is also a multi-award winning, highly acclaimed author, and it's his absolutely incredible latest book, Giants, which I'll be mostly speaking with him about today. So Peter, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. It's a real treat. How are you doing, sir? Great, James. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being with us, man. I really do appreciate it. And I, as I said in the intro there, I'm a huge, huge fan of the book. I think it's a really important work and hats off and kudos to yourself for putting together such a brilliant and important book. I think for people who haven't yet read the book, a good place to start would be a simple question, which I think is probably going to open up a Pandora's box. Um, the book is called Giants. So who are the giants? The giants uh, are trillion dollar investment companies. Uh, like BlackRock and J.P. Morgan Chase, they have they invest people's money, multimillionaires give them millions of dollars, and then they'll invest it in the market and um, try to get a guaranteed return in the you know seven percent plus rate. Um, and as we looked at this, we started to realize that these are really giant. Companies, they, they, you know, a trillion dollars, you know, it's a thousand billions. And um, some of these companies in 2017 were, you know, four trillion or two trillion. I mean, just massive amounts of, of, of money there. And there were 17 companies in 2017 that uh, were a trillion dollar, had over a trillion dollars in assets. Now, 
what we're working on right now is an update to that. And uh, today, there are 31 companies that are giants, so have over a trillion dollars in assets. And the original 17 have mostly doubled their assets in the last five years. Wow. So we look at who's managing these companies, um, who's on their board of directors, and uh, do kind of identify them and say, okay, fellas, um, it's time that we really uh, address some of the the, uh, concerns about wealth concentration in the world and what's happening. The environmental concerns, the concerns of increased poverty in the world, and um, and, and access to uh, resources uh, that are have been privatized and maintained for personal self interest. These thirty one mega firms that you're talking about, then they're important to be singled out because essentially they sit at the top of the pyramid, don't they? Their tentacles. Um, infiltrate pretty much everything else on the planet don't, don't they is, is that why you you focused on what in the book what was 17 mega firms which now you've just said is 31 is that because essentially they are the top of the food chain yeah well they they manage free-flowing capital so i mean corporations have assets they have um buildings and patents and um equipment and uh, production kinds of things what we're talking about here is free-flowing capital in the world, and that's massively increased. There's been this financialization process of trying to monetize literally everything in the world and to make returns on it. So uh, the people, the companies with the largest amount to invest have a huge impact on on what's going on in the world. And one of our biggest concerns, of course, is in the environmental issues that. Uh, um, the world is facing today is is literally threatening um, human existence. One of the questions I wanted to to come on to, but I'll save it for a bit, is with regards to to that um, the people, the actual human beings behind this, and what is the conflict there between what they do for a living and their role in the world, and I'm certain an awareness that they must have of the effects of that. But I'm going to park that up because I want to delve more into the mechanics of how this system works. Because in the book, you describe it in, in four separate but interlinked layers. So at the top, you've got the giants. Then you've got the facilitators. You've got the protectors. And you've got the ideologues. So if we could, if we could briefly run through those one at a time. So the giants you've just explained are these 31 mega asset management firms that sit pretty much at the top of the food chain. Beneath that, then, you've got the facilitators. Now, these are organizations such as the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the G7. Could you explain the nature of these institutions and the role they play in keeping this system afloat? Well, what we're looking at over the last quarter century or more um, has been the globalization of capital. And when we say that, um, we create these companies that are managed capital and governments support them in the ability to um, invest and and get returns uh, literally anywhere in the world. So these big capital investment companies, they very much would like to be 
furthering their investment capabilities in Africa um, or in Siberia uh, around the world. And so their policies are to try to uh, have free, free flow capital, no interference uh, from governments in terms of capital and profit taking. So that that is a an important thing to understand this that this capital is so heavily concentrated um, that back in 2017, less than 200 people controlled uh, 41 trillion dollars worth of wealth. So they were the ones making the decisions about how it would be invested. So if they invest in armament companies or they in, they invest in everything. And and their biggest problem is they have more capital than they have safe places to invest. Mm. Um, and that's where government will step in and try to open up investment opportunities mm. for them and uh, to try to protect protect these interests. Um, intelligence agencies work on their behalf. Governments work on their behalf. Um, it's not like these elites in these companies will tell the president to say, well, you do this. Who's ever president in the country knows that they have to maintain and support uh, global capital and that they're going to um, do what they can to protect that and not see a decline, economic decline. So the, the conflict is that they have so much capital, they don't have enough places to do it, uh, to invest it that are safe. And uh, back in 2008, you know, we saw kind of an economic collapse for a while because these companies. Um, we're doing speculative investments on subprime mortgages and uh, lost a lot. And that became, it literally came close to collapsing the economy in the world. So um, that kind of concentration of wealth only increases the risks of, of global economic collapse because very few people are trying, they're all beating each other. They're invested in each other. So we're talking about in 2017, $41 trillion uh, that were managed by less than 200 people. And those people interact with the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, uh, their own governments, uh, making policy decisions um, and or making recommendations for policy decisions that governments can do. And governments respond to that. They're more than willing to try to get them to um continue to grow and expand. The difficulty that arises is um, a lack of safe investment opportunities. Um, these companies are investing in things that hurt us, um, whether it's food or arms or um, in, you know, thing, companies that are affecting the environment. Uh, burning coal companies that are digging coal and burning it. All of that is invested by these in giants and they help make it happen. So we're seeing in, in environmental concerns um, that threaten the human species in, in the world today. We're seeing uh, wars um, and the war in Ukraine is, is one example of that, but we're seeing the preparation for war, the expenditures of mass billions of dollars on military expenditures. And these are, when we say that, you say we're going to spend a billion dollars and give it to Ukraine to fight the Russians. Uh, that money is being spent to buy products from companies that make weapons um, and, or even in some cases, private mercenaries that are, that are engaged in this mm -hmm. war. And so this violence, these wars are very profitable. 
And so continuing to prepare for war um, is in many ways more profitable than trying to invest in companies that are over-invested already and they're not getting good returns. So we, we it's a massive conflict that threatens um, human existence. What a crazy system we live within. I mean, this might seem like a really naive question, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I mean, why is the whole house of cards dependent upon there being such a extreme concentration of wealth right at the top of the pyramid? Why is that so essential to the way that the world's economy is structured? I mean, we've got a fixed amount of capital in a closed system. So why is it so important that 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 capital is all concentrated in one tiny percentage of the world's population? Why couldn't that same amount of money within the same closed system be distributed more equally? And why can't that money be pooled into things that benefit the bulk of humanity, regardless of whether it makes a profit or not, rather than just building up and up and up and up within the ever-diminishing confines of less than 1% of the world's population? Well, we could. Um, The 1% could accept um, a philosophical approach to protect the environment, to have shared governance, uh, to have sustainability. Um, And some of them have begun to recognize that we're facing world economic collapse and environmental destruction and the threat of nuclear war. And there have been forming what's called EGS, Environment, Government, and Social Policies within these companies, these investment companies that are supposedly um, designed to prevent world economic collapse, world environmental collapse, because they're worried about it. These are people, and they have children and grandchildren, and um, they're worried about the long-term capital. But they also want to protect their investment, to protect private capital, and continue to see it grow. And the more it grows, the more power they have in terms of where they can decide to invest it and engage with it. Um, so some of them have a conscience to, to speak of. but um, And part of that is reflected by the World Economic Forum and their effort towards a great reset of capitalism. So they're saying we're going to maintain capitalism. It's going to become more conscious. It's going to be... Um, bring about human betterment but unfortunately the ex that the opposite of happening is is happening there's greater poverty in the world there's greater uh threats of war um the environment is facing you know climatic you know change massive change so i think we're looking at uh tampa to, you know in the next 24 48 hours is going to be heavily impacted by this massive hurricane that hasn't happened there in 100 years Oh, this is one of the things that really confuses me is because, as you said, you know, they, these are people, you know, they've got you know, children and grandchildren and, you know, hopes and dreams. And, you know, they, they're also highly educated people, as you show in the book, you know, they've all been through elite universities and private, privately educated. So they're, they're not unintelligent. So how do they marry that conflict between an awareness of their role in the world and the consequences of it, whilst clinging to a belief that capitalism still works, you know, when it cl- quite clearly doesn't. They actually believe in the trickle-down theory. People actually believe that. They believe that they're, 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 by concentrating wealth, that they will be able to 
grow and expand and help you know eliminate poverty in the world and that but that's simply not true uh world poverty is 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 massively increased um people are becoming you know we have huge homeless problems there's all kinds yeah. of social issues that, that we're faced with and um the their continued concentration of wealth is a factor that uh directly contributes uh to all the negative things that are happening in society and they must know that though surely or do they live in such a bubble i think that they do or they or they know it to a, a certain extent but you know they believe that capitalism can continue to grow and expand and then that will trickle down give people jobs and and really make the world a better place um that's simply not true. All the indicators are that we're going in the opposite direction and, you know, that we are faced with catastrophic um, potential or, you know, increased mass famine, um, environmental destruction, um, destroying of, of the oceans and, and the inability to use land, the use of pesticides and and growth products in agriculture that are concentrated for more return. Um, <clears throat> it's it's um, not a good scenario. And so as we, you know, the people who study transnational capitalist class, they realize that the World Bank and the World Economic Forum and the uh, various um, world organizations are being established to help facilitate capital concentration get um <clears throat> private wealth controlling and making decisions worldwide and protecting that wealth um and allow it's and it's moving in the direction of a you know a, a global class of people like one percent or less uh that are the elites and um <clears throat> they all have similar lifestyles they went to similar schools yep um they're all worth millions if you're on the board of directors of one of these uh, giant uh, giants, you're getting a salary of at least a quarter million, and you get free stock. Right. So uh, you could be, you know, a person with, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of wealth, um, and you get placed on one of these boards. In a couple of years, you're going to be a multimillionaire. Well, you refer to them in the book as the transnational capitalist class. So this is essentially a class, isn't it? It's, an, it, it's, it's a global capitalist class. Right. Because they know each other, they interact globally. And even in China, there's more billionaires than there are in the U.S. And their wealth is highly concentrated as, as well. But their government is managed by the Politburo and the Communist Party, um, whereas ours is maintained through Citizens United and private capital, uh, buys people and they win elections. And it's so it's strongly influenced by private capital. Well, I grabbed a bit from the book, which I thought highlighted the severity of this in terms of the numbers. And in the book, you say that uh, the transnational capitalist class it's essentially 17 mega firms. Of these 17 mega firms, there are 199 core individuals that control them. Now, of these less than 200 individuals, 70% are male, 
84% are white. Almost all of them have attended elite private schools and elite universities. 59% of them are from the USA and the rest are mostly from Europe. Most of them serve as advisors or members of the IMF, the WTO, the World Bank, the G7, the G20, the WEF, the Trilateral Commission, and the Council on Foreign Relations, and many, many others that you can think of. Now, we're talking about less than 200 people here, man. Now, that is a lot of power and a lot of wealth to be concentrated in the hands of less than 200 people working for less than 18 companies in the world. Like, that to me is absolutely terrifying when you think of the power that they wield over policies and constructs that affect the lives of everybody else on the planet. I mean, that is terrifying, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, it's such a concentration of wealth. It's very undemocratic. This is privatized capital. Um, In the book, we have a letter to the global power elite as a postscript. And we're basically telling them that they cannot continue. It's no longer acceptable for you to believe that you can manage capitalism to grow its way out of growth, growth inequalities we all face. The environment cannot accept more pollution and waste and civil unrest everywhere is inevitable at some point. So, um, we're seeing, you know, more books now where like, um, William Robinson's uh, book of last year was called the global civil war. And he's saying that he's a transnational capitalist class scholar. He wrote the introduction to giants and he's at uh, UC Santa Barbara and someone who's really made their career focusing on who the global power elite are. And, you know, he's there's, we're saying that, um, this, this cannot continue. And it's signed by 109 or people or so. Um, including um uh including William Robinson and and a number of others that uh, recognize that this problem is ongoing and it is not be, it's not being reversed and no matter what level of consciousness they have and this whole EGS environmental governance and social awareness uh has been in the last particularly since covid over the last couple of years, all these companies are starting to say, well, we're more concerned about this now and we're going to try to do better and, and, and that. But uh, the structure of cap- concentrated wealth and capitalism is, is it literally irreversible without some major intervention um, and democratic uh, movements uh, that, you know, create laws that uh, use that capital for human betterment instead of private wealth. Well, I have a lot of like causes highlighted on the podcast, you know, from activists and campaigners, investigative journalists and politicians, etc. And every single issue seems to end at that same point of we need systemic change. Like all of these things can be easily remedied if we just had the political action to do so. I mean, just off the top of my head, there are tons of things we could do to remedy this particular situation. You know, we can put caps on what one individual can earn relative to everybody else in society or within their organization. You know, we could raid the tax havens. We could put regulations in place to say that the bulk of the produce from collective society gets distributed in a manner that benefits that society rather than floating upwards towards the top 1%. You know, these are all things that could happen tomorrow. We just need politicians and governments to enact it into law. And then there it is. Yeah, except there's other people pushing the other way. 
<laughs> BlackRock, uh, the world's largest money manager, uh, received a letter from 19 Republican state attorneys accusing them of using cli- a climate agenda ahead of clients' uh, profits. Hmm. And, um, and that they are accusing BlackRock of boycotting like coal companies and this. And so BlackRock has said that they have never dictated admissions targets to any company and it doesn't coordinate, but their wealth, their eight, nine trillion now that they're managing, if they try to cut back on, they're going to get sued. Right. Uh, and so the, I call them the neocons or the far right wing Republicans and economic people and in, in power in various places are challenging any effort to not allow, you know, full blown capital to invest anywhere it wants to and to get good returns for their clients. And, um, that, that's scary because these companies, they can make decisions. I mean, I looked up uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's a very big concern with um, uh, private uh, weapons in, in the U.S. There's all these school shootings. There's yeah. mass murders, uh, AR-15s and, and uh, semi-automatic uh, weapons of various sorts. There's only a couple of companies that make those. And there's BlackRock right in the top of, of their investors and, and, and J.P. Morgan Chase. So if you're saying, well, how, how come there's there's so many AR-15s and people can get them? Um, the states allow people to buy them and uh, any effort to restrict them uh, uh, challenged by people who are concerned with the Second Amendment. Um, and so these, these, these giant companies are part and contributing to uh, the ability to people to buy these weapons and then shoot up the, their neighborhood. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite concerning when you talk about it. And, um, so I, what's, what we're moving towards now is identifying what's happened since 2017. The giants book was based on 2017 data. And most of that data came from the, the giants, the transnational capital corporations, um, it came from their own, uh, proxy reports. So if you read, uh, um, if they're a public corporation, they have to issue an annual report. Um, and in that report is not only who are their board of directors, how much they're paid, how much stock they hold, um, what their main policies are. And um, <clears throat> so you can read all this and identify, you know, who's doing what. You can check their investment portfolios and see who, where they're invested, what kind of uh, you know, coal or, or environmental dis- destructive uh, companies they're invested in or weapons companies that they're invested in um, and or and how that wealth continues to concentrate um, and that the 80 percent of the world people live on less than ten dollars a day. And half the world lives on less than three dollars a day. Yeah. So this one percent that owns almost half the world's wealth and then manage um, the top 20% of the people. If you're a multimillionaire, you can stick a million dollars in one of these companies and they'll invest it for you and get you a 7% return. 
Um, <clears throat> so there's, you know, thousands, I think there's 60 million millionaires and uh, their money is being managed by these private companies. And um, there's only, um, to you know, the 31 t- giants now is, is, is double. And so it's, it's certainly concentrated. But of the 17 companies that were giants in 2017, eight of them, the same, same eight companies now have more wealth than they did in, in all of collectively in 2017. Jesus Christ. So, you know, that's um, over $50 trillion. The top eight that's insane. Um, companies today have $50 trillion. So what we're doing is I'm building a, a new book, which hopefully will be done in the spring. It'll be called Titans of Capital. And we'll be looking at uh, what's happened to the 17 companies that we identified five years ago. Um, their boards of directors are still about half the same people. People die, they retire, they go to other places, but they're replaced by people of, of very similar backgrounds, mm. you know, wealth, income, family connections, and, um, and, and private universities. And, and social interactions through various private clubs like the Bohemian Club, I'm going to write about in this book, um, <clears throat> facilitate a transnational class interaction with a few million people in the world. And then these places like Davos, where the World Economic Forum hosts, hosts uh, three or 4,000 people every year, and then their policies that they're trying to engage with and, you know, help improve they're talking about uh human betterment um but in reality the they actually are continuing to concentrate wealth and that leads to greater famine and uneasiness and wars and civil resistance to that kind of privatization so if half the world's living on three dollars a day um and the rest of the you know the rest of the world is living on on ten dollars a day this inequality is is uh, going to stress out the world, so to speak, yeah, yeah. in very negative ways. Yeah. So you know the famine that we're seeing in in in, in Africa, uh, the continued global warming threats, uh, massive storms and environmental damage. All of that is facilit- is increasing and, and being driven by wealth concentration, trying to get a return and force returns um, in whatever place that they possibly can. And uh, that's threatening to all of us. It seems to me that it's sociopath- sociopathy and insanity <laughs> um, uh, m- manifested through economics. It's essentially what it seems to me. This is completely undurable and unsustainable, and there has to be a breaking point. If not, um, then the whole the whole planet that all of us live it's on. A, a breaking point is inevitable. Yeah, it's inevitable. And people who are billionaires or millionaires and and have this these assets want to continue to to concentrate. There is a kind of social pathology that goes with that. Um, you know, I'm getting mine. I'm going to increase my wealth. Yeah. I'm going to share it with my children. Um, and hopefully we'll have plenty of uh, police state 
capabilities within our class to control the uh, masses of people worldwide. So that nation states um, literally become um, population containment zones and, you know, have, have their own militaries and their own police force to control um, mass resistance or people who are starving and trying to um, force taxation or force uh, rich folks to share their will. Um, they're not planning to do that. They want to continue to concentrate and grow wealth. Um, and that's destroying the world. That's ins- well, it's literally insanity. It seems to me that it is ideological fanaticism. Is it capitalistic fanaticism or fundamentalism? Would, would you describe it that way? I mean, it seems to be a completely blinkered religious almost belief in the virtues of capitalism, despite the glaring evidence to the contrary. Well, James, you're saying it's saying it quite well. I mean, that's what the Giants book said five years ago. And it's it's gotten all I can tell you is it's gotten worse. Jeez. And that the wealth concentration is greater. Um, they're manipulating um, governments and, uh, you know, worldwide bribery occurs often. It, it's it's a corrupting influence to human survival. Right. I can't say it. I don't think I can say it any other way. No, but you said it. You said it brilliantly throughout the whole book, you know. So, um, you know, people need to go and read the book, really. But what, what I love about the book is that it, it's, it, I, listening to this conversation today, it could sound very heavy and, and almost academic because of the research based nature of it. But it's actually really, really readable. I whizzed through it in like a few days and it's absolutely fascinating. But what you've managed to do is condense all of this really meticulously researched information and, communicated it in a really readable and quite simplified way without losing any of the um the thrust of the of the points that you're making i think it's very unique in that way um I, it's a very readable book and it, it was mind-blowing for myself it's one that i'll keep going back to because one of the things i found fascinating was that at no point when i'm looking through these biographies of these um you know the, these top 389 individuals at no point did i see a mention of bill gates elon musk jeff bezos or any of the guys that we know of as being like the richest guys in the world in fact as i skimmed through the book i hardly recognized any of them they're in there but they're in there in a minor way i mean gates uh uses his foundation try to influence um world health or world health issues um but and he's and he's well known but it's the decision makers around how these trillions of dollar of capital are invested. I mean, Bill Gates is a billionaire. But if you're sitting on a board of directors of a corporation that has $8 trillion worth of wealth, uh, in many ways, you have more influence on capitalism than Bill Gates. Right. Or Bezos. Yeah. They get the attention because they're individuals and, um, you know, people are, they, they say, you know, Oh, we all want to be rich. And, and that's simply not true. Um, most people want to have security and, and a way of getting by. But if you start acquiring money just to have it um, and, and massively, you know, privately own it and, and benefit and, and not do use it in any way to help other people, um, that's, I think, wrong, morally wrong. Yeah. And we need to 
require these elites through um, democratic social movements at a state level and an international level as well, require them to move towards human betterment in using that capital that benefits everybody in the world. Yeah. But it's become privatized and they continue to make that um, even greater extent. So Gate, I mean, Gates people like him, are they more concerned with overpopulation hmm. um, that, you know, a billion people or 8 billion people um, is too many for the planet, which is partially correct. But people have have babies and children um, as a means of, for most people in the world, it's a means of uh, old age protection. Mm, yeah. So if you have five kids and you get old, you can't work or anything, the kids will take care of you. And that's a strategy that's been around since human beings have been on this earth. Yeah. And, um, you know, so you build your family and your, your clan and you work together. But the idea that one person would have all the wealth in that clan is just unheard of um, philosophically or historically or anthropologically uh, in world history. We've reached that point today in, in less than 200 years of, of you know, concentrated capitalism worldwide um, that has so massively concentrated and kept it that way that um, the inequality is, is, is terminal for the world. And we have to um, use democratic social movements, awarenesses of that, uh, ultimately to force um, through nonviolent social movements is, would be my preference, but yeah. ultimately force these elites. So part of my effort is to identify who these titans are and what's the terminology we're using in the next book and we're looking at the top 10 investment companies which now will have um close to 50 trillion dollars worth of wealth which they doubled those. Christ. Absolutely and they're insane. basically the same ones that were there in 2017 they're basically the same uh people managing them they, there's in a they lose one or two on their board each year um so their boards are half still about half the same people um and they are making um <clears throat> public relations statements about their concerns for the environment and dem democracy and governments but they're in reality um the money is not being put to that that kind of use <clears throat> so we have in, the facilitators in the book the giants there are the elite policy planners um, and there's organizations like the Atlantic Council, yeah. which is the private um, non-governmental advisory body to NATO and, and world and the world you know, capitalist countries, military systems. The Atlantic Council um, puts out reports on a regular basis. They have a couple hundred members. They have a board of directors of 15 or so individuals. And uh, they're the ones saying it's. Um, time for Putin to be removed. Right. But they've been saying that for 10 years. And he's fully aware of that. And they're the ones that were establishing the policy that spent $4 billion um, to promote governmental change in the Ukraine 
and um, push out a pro-Russian pro government and uh, bring back uh, basically the elements of the, of the fascist government that had been there and, and fought against Russia during World War II. Hmm. And uh, so, of course, Putin was, was upset by that. Or so were, you know, anybody in the, the Kremlin who sees that kind of money being spent on the Ukraine, saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, saw NATO expand even further to their borders in Poland and, and um, the other countries uh, near them, threatening um, militarily and economically and pushing for the, the collapse of, of, of Russia, not just the Soviet Union, and a, and a regime change. And they just write that and say, we want to see this happen. We want Putin to be pushed out. And he reads this stuff, or they, or the, they, they read it, and they know exactly what the Atlantic Council is trying to make happen. And uh, this is all private, private money um, that funds the Atlantic Council, and um, <clears throat> big corporations are involved and help pay for it. And then, of course, they are own the corporate media. So the book in, in, in chapter six talks about the, you know public relation firms yes. and, and the global media, yeah. big private PR firms are packaging what the world is finding out on television news and, and, uh, and newspapers. Terrifying. Yeah, and that- they're all owned and, and controlled by the um, global power elite, the titans of capital, um, have economic control over the, over the world's um, media. And and uh, so we, you know, you don't see criticisms of capitalism on most media shows. They just they just don't go there. That chapter, the ideologues, is absolutely terrifying. It was one of the most terrifying ones for me because even though I've read books like Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and things, um, just seeing those same people popping up time and time again on the boards and the the CEOs of these massive PR and media companies also attending, you know, Davos and the Trilateral Commission and the, all the same clubs. And you just get to see that time and time again, it's the same clubs, it's the same people, and they all infiltrate all layers of this, whether it's the the financial side of it or the media side of it or the military industrial side of it. It's the same tiny, tiny handful of really, really rich, powerful people that permeate all of it. Yeah, and, and, in the, and, and there's been the continued financialization of capitalism, meaning um, money today is not in, most of the money today is not invested in productive activities. So if you invest in GM, GM's building cars. But most of the capital today is free-floating speculative capital. Hmm. And so people are making money by um, and betting on the, you know, the value of, of money. Will, will the yen um, change relative to the dollar? Or financialization is literally the putting a monetary value on everything in, in the world. And this... Um, that monetary value is is controlled by increasingly fewer and fewer people that dominate um, where, which direction the world is going. Yeah, and um, they they own and control the corporate media. They own and control um, private military companies. 
um, like BlackRock, which yeah. is one of the largest, and, and uh, GPS, GTS um, is one of the other large ones. And they can put mercenaries or privatized police anywhere in the world and um, control um, populations uh, violently. So that kind of you know ability to literally kill anybody in the world they choose um, makes me think that we just literally have to have a nonviolent social resistance of non-cooperation yeah. with global capital until they agree to start sharing it and doing the things with that wealth that are needed to maintain the world and keep children from starving and uh, and protect us from uh, uh, diseases um, that uh, threaten our, our whole existence. Well, I want to come into, um, when we wrap up, I want to ask you about change and what can people do but I'm still I'm still stuck on this the the idea the ideology side of it because I just can't wrap my head around how intelligent worldly people could not understand the conflict here. And I know that obviously all of these people are educated in many of the same places, and I'm sure that they're all taught the same ideology in these institutions, in these private and elite universities. What role do the universities play in that, and why? I mean, it, it, I can't imagine that the professors such as yourself, you know, who, who teach at these universities where some of these giants come through. I can't imagine that they are part of the elite, you know. So what, what adherence do they have to this ideology, which is quite plainly flawed? Well, those that support global capitalism concentration and really believe that there will be an economic wealth will grow so rapidly that it'll save the world. They are the ones, of course, that elites will invite to be speakers and be on policy boards and that. Mm. If you don't have that kind of support uh, or you're not taking that kind of a position, you can be a professor at a university. You can talk to 100 kids a year, and that's not going to bring about major change in the world. Right. Um, I was been a professor um, for 26 years at Sonoma State University. It was basically a working class university. Um, had lots of, of great students, but uh, not one, you know, not any that are capable of organizing resistance that will impact the global power elite. Um, at least, not in any immediate way. But um, <clears throat> so that's you know one of the reasons I wrote the book um, because I look at at how concentrated wealth is, how much more it's concentrated in the last five years. Um, and we're going in a direction that inevitably is unsustainable. Yeah. Environmentally, um, economically, socially, it's un, it's unsustainable. And we are faced with either the possible environmental, economic collapse, or perhaps even both simultaneously hmm. with efforts by governments and intelligence agencies to repress resistance, population resistance, and um, massive uh, deaths from, you know, local resistance and civil wars. Yeah. That is our future if we can't force that, those kinds of changes um, to come about immediately. So I, I believe that by 
writing this book, by identifying the people that are making this happen. None of them are evil people per se. They're all probably all nice to their dog and their grandkids, <laughs> but um, they control wealth and resources that should belong to the world. Yeah. And I mean, they're coming from the world, and but now less than 1% of the people have, have gained control. So we're in a way it's going back to, uh, feudalism yeah. where most of us are, you know, peasants with very little ability to affect anything in the world. And there's the royalty or the people I will call the Titans in the next book, Titans of capital, um, who are in control, who dominate and uh, believe that they're doing the best thing for the world and, of course, for themselves. And that is dangerous, and we have to call them out on it, and we need to um, identify who, who this is and, and how they're engaged. And it's been shown, like, like <clears throat> J- uh, Jamie Dimon at, at Chase Manhattan, um, the, the people have have, have uh, protested in front of his ha- in front of his home, and he has made some efforts to have environmental um, cons- consequences addressed by their investment policies. There are people, of course, that resist that quite openly, um, and you know we see some efforts, but it's not enough. It's not fast enough. And one or two individuals are not going to be able to make this happen. And they have to be um, democratic. It's going to have to be people making the decisions about the resources in the world um, that are privately held and either acquiring those um, via taxation and government control or literally occupying those places of power. Or it's going to happen the other way because people are going to, the, the temperature is going to get so hot and it's going to burst and there's going to be mass civil unrest and rioting and violence and destruction because it's, people aren't just, people aren't going to take it anymore. They're going to get too desperate. You can see that happening already over here in Britain with the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis and, you know, Brexit and, you know, even the middle class is now getting squeezed. You know, the poor are always getting squeezed, but as soon as the middle class start getting squeezed, but now that's, you know, that's, that's half the population right there. So. Yeah. And, and the conservative right-wing governments that are now in Italy or basically yeah. in, in Great Britain, Germany, um, are supportive of global capital and want to protect it. And they will, the ideologists will blame immigrants yeah. and um, for, you know, people that are fleeing and trying to, um, make uh, save themselves from violence and environmental destruction around the world. Um, millions and millions of people are, are moving with their feet and, and resisting with their bodies and their presence um, in the capital wealth countries. Um, that kind of repression could get quite severe and extremely deadly for, for many of us. Yeah, there could be a breaking point coming, I think, you know, because as soon as you see this pattern of um, a move, a shift to the right, which is happening, as you say, all over Europe, um, I think that's symptomatic of something further down the line 
coming, you know, a, a shift in society. I think the shift to the right is often an indicator of anger and a sense of uh, disenfranchisement and disillusionment. And I think that can often be expressed in pretty ugly ways that are far from democratic and peaceful. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid that, that you're right. And um, it's going to take millions of people with shared con- with shared consciousness of what needs to happen and a building of democratic sharing we also we also call that socialism uh, of the world's wealth and making sure that that child born in a deprived country has an opportunity to live and grow up and bring and contribute to humanity through their work and their um and their actions yeah i mean the the solutions to all of this have existed for a long time it's not rocket science is it you know we we know what the social safety nets are we know what the um but you said the dirty word yourself socialism you know what i mean socialism works in the favor of society capitalism works in the favor of capital you know so i mean this the solutions that are tried and tested they, they do work um you know i live in a, a country that used to have socialist um economic principles you know national health service free university education and nationalized energy energy and nationalized public transport and stuff you know these, these are not complicated or esoteric concepts you know they're tried and tested and they work in the interests of the bulk of, of society and um you know they're there for the taking but they've been stolen and um and locked away by a sociopathic less than one percent class of ideological religiously fundamentalist madmen <laughs> you gotta write a book yourself <laughs> I did write one, but it was all about myself. <laughs> I recommend I, I recommend a, a new one that just came out by William Robinson. Can global capitalism endure? Okay, and um, he, it just came out. It, it's a it's literally a three hour read, if, if that. But he's laying out all the weaponized a transnational capital class weaponizing ideology, weaponizing central control, um, and, and saying that inevitably um, capitalism will collapse. And he, he, he's quite good at explaining why. And um, I think my book and the one I'm working on now is going to be very complementary to that. Right. Thanks for the tip off, man. I'm, I will be buying that bad boy tonight and adding it to my ever increasing bedside table reading collection. <laughs> I recommend it. Well, I know I don't have you for much longer, so I'm going to try and there's tons of things I wanted to ask you and I don't have time to ask you all of them. But one of the things I definitely wanted to squeeze in before I let you go is the book focuses mostly around the Western elite. And I know that that's obviously where most of the power in the world does reside. But we are seeing, as far as I can see anyway, a, a changing dynamic around the world. Obviously, I'm talking about the rise of China and India and Russia. I mean, how do they fit in with this? I'm sure they've got their own elites as well. Um, does that slot in and complement with Western elitism and capitalism, or does it pose a threat to it? The biggest perceived threat by the Western um, policy groups, the Atlantic Council and Trilateral Commission, is Russia. Right. Um, China is an economic threat. Russia really isn't. But Russia has their 5,000 nuclear bombs. 
mm-hmm. and vast resources that um, could be developed and they want them to be developed. China has made m- huge transitions in building a middle class, uh, making eliminating poverty in rural settings. I mean, the transformation that's happened in the last 40 years in, in China is just um, tremendous and very positive for most people. Yes, there's still a single party, um, Politburo and a class of elites. Um, but their goal is to build economic stability and improvement for everybody in the country. That is not the goal of the West. The mm. goal of the West is continue to concentrate wealth in the, in the 1%. Right. So, you know, the Chinese billionaires uh, don't have any economic, they can't use their economic wealth to uh, try to make uh, governmental changes and, and uh, uh, control the government. They're just not allowed to do that. Um, <clears throat> so I think that we will, I'm part of this next book is, and William Robinson really said, you got to bring China in. And so I will be putting together um, a whole, I've already started a big file on China and their economics and that kind of thing. So that'll be part of the book I'm going to write by April this year. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to read it, man. It sounds fascinating. And what is Russia's standing in all of this then? I mean, you know, I can't tell what's going on with Russia anymore. Is it, is it communist, capitalist, something in between, a kleptocracy, or what's going on? They're, they're pretty much capitalist um, in the sense that the oligarchs acquired the wealth of the Soviet Union um, and privatized it. So there's an elite class in, of wealth owners in, in Russia. They had start, Yeltsin was allowing U.S. investments there, and basically Putin reversed that. And um, so that free-flowing U.S. Uh, global capital going into Russia, protected and safe, um, has, has basically been reversed, and it became uh, Russian oligarchs that were controlling the, the wealth and the investments in Russia. There was a huge decline, of course, in working class um, decisions, um, but that's been improving over the last decade. So Putin has been very aware that they have to allow uh, a working class to have some growth and achievement and, and that. Yeah, but right. Our, the West's ideology, NATO's uh, approach, has always been to see Russia um, become fully capitalist and allow for private capital be invested there and right. uh, <clears throat> versus, and they just don't not anymore. Yeltsin did, mm. but they don't anymore. And uh, we're still there, you know, they're, they're a big influence. There's still a billion dollars. Um, even today with the war going on, the U S is still buying a billion dollars a month worth of, of Russian yeah. products and resources and uh, groups like, BlackRock and the big banks and the investment companies have offices in China. So the Chinese billionaires can invest in BlackRock or allow their money to be invested and, and, and involved. So I really need to, I will be looking at that dynamic as part of the next book to see how close the um, asset management companies are in terms of cooperative working capital. Uh, in terms of China and eventually Russia. 
but um, it's concerning. The U.S., <clears throat> during, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a lot of people don't know this, but John Pilger laid it out quite clearly. Um, the U.S. Um, nuclear forces uh, were ready to fire on Russia if they brought missiles into Cuba, which they had, and we found out about it, and, and it became a, a, a world crisis that came very close to global war. Um, that is still possible um, if the U.S. continues to um, militarily try to dominate uh, both Russia and, and China. Right. Uh, China has one or two foreign military bases, a uh, naval shipyard in Sri Lanka, um, and the U.S. has 800 bases worldwide, completely surrounding China and Russia. Yeah, yeah. And, re- and ready, quite ready to uh, destroy them. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the U.S. forces not only had targeted Russia, but the policy was to also target China. And had, had it gone to nuclear war then, we would have taken out every uh, every Chinese major city and destroyed them, even if they weren't attacking us. Jesus Christ. So the, anti, the feelings of anti-communism um, were paramount in American and NATO, the European elite classes, um, and in many ways very dangerous. And they continue to concentrate military power to threaten Russia and to threaten um, China and and of course Venezuela Iran and and uh, Cuba Cuba and and North Korea as well if you don't play the capital game you're not safe but nobody is safe yeah no I I agree Jeez, it's just terrifying on so many different levels. And that's why I think the power of your book is so important. And more people, I hope, will go and buy the book after reading this. Because I think in looking at the scale of the problem, being able to whittle it down to the actual names of the individuals, the human beings that we're talking about, not abstract institutions or notions or concepts, actual the actual people that we're talking about. You've identified them and explored them and explained them in this book. And I think that is such a powerful starting point for clarity of moving forward with some desperately needed urgent action. Yeah, these people, they have families, they have homes, they have um, offices. Um, mostly it's very, very hard to find, get an email address for them directly or find out their, I, I, and that wasn't my goal. I, I, you could use tax records to find out where their homes are, but um, that wasn't my goal. My goal is to say, okay, these are the people that if you know them or we can need to talk to them and they need to um, be making policy decisions that benefit the world, not the 1% and the billionaires and millionaires they represent. So what needs to happen then in order to um, to move towards a movement for change? I mean, it seems to me as if we are up against an unstoppable force here that's got the governments, the military, the media, you know, the educational system and, and, and all of the money in the world in its pocket. So what can we do? And, you know, do we stand a chance? Uh, democratic social movements of nonviolent non-cooperation and the identification of the, the most powerful and a challenging of them directly.
But what specifically can people get involved with? You know, when they get up tomorrow, what what, what action can they take? I mean, is it joining a, a protest movement or a campaign group? Is it lobbying their representatives? Is it um, civil disobedience and non-cooperation? All the, all the above. All of the above, right. But most of the people in the world, just they're just getting by. You know, if you're living on $10 a day, you're not. You don't have any capabilities, and you may have to work two jobs to, to, to do it. So for those of us academics, policymakers, researchers, we have to identify and make very clear what's going on in the world and uh, who are the people that can, that could, could, could change it, that could, could make a difference. And we see some minor efforts. The EGS movements are um, most of the companies now in the world have some policy statements about that. Um, but they still continue to do very negative things. And the ideology from or the media is not going to expose them when it's privately owned by them as well. Well, we've got a tough challenge ahead of us, but we've got to make it work because, as you say, you know, if we don't do it peacefully and democratically, it's it's going to blow up of its own accord. So we're at a crossroads right now from the way that I see it. Um, and I, I, I applaud you for the book that you've written, which is an absolutely essential and indispensable tool in the in the um, the movement towards a hopeful, peaceful and democratic change. So thank you so much for, for putting together such a brilliant book. And I can't wait for the next one. You said it's called Titans. I, the t- working title right now right. is, is uh, Titans of Capital. Giants were the corporations. When right. I said giants and the global power elite, the giants were the trillion-dollar investment companies. The titans will be the people who are on the board of directors, and I'm going to go with the top 10 uh, investment companies, and they're going to be, they currently have about $50 trillion that they're investing and we're looking at what a uh, a release perhaps late next year. Uh that's the I have a con- seven stories press supposed to get it to them by April, May. Uh, yeah, it'll probably be a uh, about a year from now. I can't wait. <laughs> I come quick enough for me. For Peter, thank you. thank you so much. I know I promised you I'd do an hour. We've just gone a bit over, so I'm going to have to let you. I could literally ask you questions and pick your brains all night long, but I know that I can't do that. So. Well, it's been it's fun. I, it's good. I, I haven't done many interviews. I've been saying actually saying no to most folks because I really have to concentrate on getting this book done. But uh, you, you intrigued me. It was London, and I, I said, okay, fine, let's do it. Well, I was very persistent. I think you very politely uh, relented to my relentless nagging, I think, is what happened. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Peter Phillips, thank you so much for stopping by and blowing our minds today. We all really appreciate it, and we appreciate you and everything you do. Thanks for the incredible book, Giants by Peter Phillips, is out now. Peter Phillips, thank you so much for joining us, and I can't wait for the next book. Best wishes with the writing, and hopefully we'll speak to you when that one comes around. Okay, James, thanks a lot. Cheers, Peter. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Professor Peter Phillips, ladies and gentlemen, put it together for him. What do you think of that? Mind-blowing stuff, huh? I can't praise this book highly enough. I've never seen anything quite like it, where he's actually just like a directory of the world's elite, the, 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 the string pullers, you know? These are the guys. And I promised at the start that I would give you some of the names. Now, I'm not going to rattle off, you know, nearly 400 names or whatever on a podcast. That would just be boring and pointless, right? But I'm going to, I'm going to rattle through a little selection 
And let's see how many of these people any of you have heard of, right? There's a few, there's a few familiar faces in there, right? But I guarantee you that most of you have not heard of 99% of the names that I'm about to reel off, right? So get a pen and paper and <laughs> scribble some of these down and just research some of these dudes. Just put one into Google, right? And just do some reading and be like, wow, this dude is in tons of different policy groups and company boards and think tanks and governments and oh and he happens to be absolutely loaded as well so get your greg palast investigative journalist hat on get your pen and papers and scribble down some of these bad boys you ready for it okay here we go tim diamore sharon l allen ablatif al hamad michael ashley sergio balbino thomas j baltimore oliver Bates, james a bell iris bonnet Jack Bovinder, Crandall Bowles, Frank Bramble, Tim Breeden, Mark Brydent, William Dudley, Roger Ferguson, Jacob Frankel, Paul Krugman, Christian Neuer, Larry Fink, James Diamond, John McFarlane, Axel A. Weber, Jane Harmon, Carla Hills, Bo Liedegaard, Mario Monti, Louis Rubio, Peter Sutherland, Paul Volcker, Thomas L. Blair, Richard Burton, Ronald Freeman, Sherry Goodman, John Huntsman, Jeff Books, Rupert Murdoch, Thomas Schraub, Summoner Redstone, and loads and loads and loads more of dudes that you've never heard of. Just see what I'm saying? It's not Bezos. It's not Trump. It's these sneaky dudes behind the scenes. You could walk past them in the street tomorrow and not know it, man. But these people literally form the policies and the constructs within which the rest of us on the entire planet have to live within. Our governments can't make policies unless they conform to what these guys want. They are the elite. If you want to know who the elite are, by Giants, by Peter Phillips, right now. And then let's knock our heads together and figure out what the hell we're going to do about it. Because if we don't do something soon, there won't be a planet to protest on. And on that happy note, I'm going to bid you farewell for another week. It's great to be back again. I hope you've all been awesome in my absence. And don't forget, if you enjoy these podcasts, please do subscribe, follow, leave me a rating, leave a review, and send me some suggestions of other interesting people that I should get on and talk to. Have an awesome week. Be awesome. Stay awesome. Be awesome to others. And I shall see you next week with an episode, which I think is going to ruffle a few of your feathers, which of course makes me very happy. So tune in for that one. (laughs) I'll see you next week. See ya.